Hi everyone and welcome to uh, the podcast at Light Unto My Path. I am your host Howard Sides and teacher if you prefer. I'd rather say teacher than host but just so we're there. <laughs> uh, today we're going to continue the study and I know it's been a while since I've, I think about three weeks since I've posted something. Uh, I've been a little busy and uh, took a week of vacation and uh, it reminds me of a, a sign I seen when I was a kid on a, a church a church sign it made a lot of sense it's always stuck with me and it said you must come apart before you come apart so i would encourage you uh, those of you that have the opportunity uh, that can go on vacation you know enjoy it uh, i know a lot of people go on vacation and end up coming back more tired than <laughs> when they left they need to go back to work to go on vacation so <laughs> uh, make sure you enjoy yourself you know just relax come apart as it says but anyway enough on that uh coming to today's lesson uh we're going to talk about a a man that uh if you know anything of history or uh remember anything in school uh i'm sure you heard a little bit about him you probably didn't hear this history about him but uh this man's name is sir francis drake uh and he played a role uh in bringing about the king james version of the bible and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today uh, as a text, if you will turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Uh, Judges, chapter 6 is towards the front of your Bible. If you uh, need uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then the book of Judges. Now, what is unique about the book of Judges? Uh, give you a kind of a brief lapse in history. God had always told Moses from the start that he wanted to rule uh, he wanted to be the supreme or, or just the lone leader of the nation of Israel. They didn't need a king and any of this thing. And uh, he had warned Moses all the time that as they led him to the promised land, you know, not let him uh, start looking to the other nations, wanting to be like the other nations. And sure enough, uh, if you know Bible history, that's where King Saul come about, that they wanted a king like the other nations. So that's what come about. But th there's this uh, phrase uh, or, or this era, I guess you'd say, uh, that the book of Judges falls in where uh, there wasn't a, a leader of the nation like Moses and Joshua. Uh, it actually says at the end of the book of Joshua, I believe it, it says that every man did what he thought was right in his own eyes. And, and so there were these periods of judges uh, that ruled in, in this Judges chapter 6, what you're introduced to in one. Uh, if you know anything about the Bible, I'm sure you've heard a story about Gideon. <clears throat> and we're going to read about that. And it kind of falls in line with uh, Sir Francis Drake here we talk about. So Genesis chapter 6. And we'll start reading in verse 11. Verse 11. And said, so There came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And the angel of the Lord, uh, and Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. 
have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Now there's several things about this passage I want to bring out. First, that verse 15 there, when he said, well, Lord, how, basically in my language, basically, well, how am I going to save Israel? He said, I'm, I'm, my family's poor as dirt, and, I, and I'm the least in all the importance of all everybody in my family. And it seems, as you go through the Bible, there is this set tradition uh, as a rule, I guess you'd say, that the firstborn uh, gets the rights to everything. Uh, everything falls to the firstborn. And God seems to uh, almost always go the opposite direction of what man would assume would be the right way. And here he picks the least, Gideon. And and when you think, well, you know, maybe he picked him because he was the strongest and he was the bravest and all of that. Well, if you back up into the first part of this uh, passage, you'll see that there, uh, there's something different about that. In verse 11, it tells us that Gideon threshed wheat by the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And of course, what was happening was Israel here would raise their grain and about the time for harvest, these Midianites would come down and beat everybody up, chase them off into the caves and steal their wheat. So Gideon's trying to hide the fact that he's threshing the wheat. But what makes it even more interesting is that he's doing it by the wine press. Now, if you know anything about wheat, wheat contains chaff, which is... Uh, Wheat comes in a shell, and it's got like a um, a, a bready-type <laughs> texture on the inside. And that's what it is. You open that shell and get the flour out of the part of that. Well, a tear is an empty shell. There's nothing in it. And so what they would do is when they'd cut this wheat, and they'd let it dry, and they would take it up on a mountaintop where the wind's always blowing, and you throw it up in the air. This is where the threshing floor is. You throw it up in the air, and the wind would carry the chafe, away or the tares that carry the chafe away and the wheat would fall as because it was a little bit heavier it'd fall back to the threshing floor but it doesn't say he was threshing wheat on the threshing floor he was threshing wheat by the wine press and the wine press was down in the valley so he was doing the exact opposite thing and i don't know how successful he was uh you can imagine if you've ever thrown wheat up over your head and when it comes back down how scratchy it is i'm sure it was falling back down on his head i don't know if much of the chafe was actually being blown away because most of the wind's at the mountaintop, not down in the valley. So uh, here he is doing the exact opposite. So they pressed all the wine and made the juice down in the valley, okay? So here this angel of the Lord appears to him in verse 12, and we see an interesting uh, characteristic of God here in this angel, and we see a sense of humor. Verse 12, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And and that's funny because when you think about here, Gideon, he's hiding down in the valley. He's not a mighty man of valor. He's a chicken. <laughs> and, you know, and I can't fault him. I, you know, who knows? If I'm in the same position, maybe I'd do the same thing. Maybe you would do the same thing. But here the angel of the Lord shows up and he's calling him out as a mighty man of valor. And that's funny. And, and I think that's a, a great uh, thing to see. A, a lot of times we focus so much on the... Uh, the direct focus of God and, and you know, the, the, the strict regulation of the laws and, and it's it's right and wrong. And, and it is that there's no God doesn't mediate or, or fluctuate on that. 
but but he does have a a happy side a, a a laughing side to him if you will and and it's great to pull these little things out of these stories and see where god you know sometimes he just picks with us <laughs> and it's and it's funny to see that it's, it's great to see that aspect of the lord it it, it lends to uh, the humanity side of him and, and so we see that there with joshua now or with uh gideon all right now um in our history part, uh, Sir Francis Drake, uh, born in 1544 and died in 1596. Uh, so that's 45 years of age, right? Yes. Four, no, maybe 54. I don't know. My math is terrible. Mm -hmm. 54. Uh, but anyway, okay. He is the oldest of 12 boys. Okay. So his mom was kept pretty much busy. 12 boys. Think about that. All right. Twelve boys. <laughs> Goodness gracious. All right, his father, Edmund Drake, was a Protestant farmer, uh, and he moved the family from their home in Devonshire to Kent on the southeastern coast uh, due to religious persecution. And even in the Bible, we see where that happens a lot with religious persecution. Some people don't fight, uh, and, and here he is. He's got 12 boys and a wife. You know, what's going to happen to them if something happens to him? So he opts to... Uh, make the choice to move away from where the persecution was. So he goes to the southeastern coast, down to Kent. Now, Edmund was appointed minister to the king's navy while down there. Uh, he also apprenticed Francis to their neighbor, who was the captain of a bark-style sailing vessel, which is a vessel of three or more vast, uh, masts. Not vast, but masts. Now, this captain was so impressed with Francis that being unmarried and childless, he bequeathed the bark-style vessel to Francis. Now, that's quite a statement there. Here, Francis, and, and this, this was the thing you did. You apprenticed. That's how you, you didn't go to college. Uh, you apprenticed. You would learn under the master. You would watch him. You would learn from him. You would listen to what he told you. You would practice doing things the way he did. Uh, and sooner or later, you would catch on to that trade. Uh, blacksmithing, sailing, just like here. All these different uh, vocations, What that was how you learned. It was hands-on. It was experience, not knowledge. Okay? And so here, uh, Francis so impressed his captain that when the captain passed away, being without children to uh, leave his treasures to anyway, he leaves his sailing vessel to Francis. So when Francis was 23 years old, he sailed to the New World with his cousin, John Hawkins. Now, in a separate voyage to Mexico with Hawkins, their vessel was captured by the Spaniards who were invading a coastal town. And they escaped when the city fell and Francis vowed revenge on the actions of the Spaniards. And you kind of draw a sense of, you know, it, it's not just the fact that he lost this ship to the Spaniards, which were enemies of the English at the time. But again, remember, uh, this captain was a man that he apprenticed under. And I'm sure there was a very strong uh, familial tie. Now, it wasn't a blood relation, but I'm sure Francis come to respect this captain. And if the captain was truly impressed with Francis the way it, it reads, um, th there was respect on both ends of that. And, and so the fact that he left that ship, uh, I'm sure it shamed him. Uh, whether he had very much that he could have done in that it made him mad, but this ship had sentimental value. You get that? And, and so I could see where, uh, this revenge factor would come into play, uh, based on those 
things that you read between the lines, all right? So uh, in less than two years, uh, Drake came back with two small vessels to attack the large Spanish galleons. Uh, now, these galleons were like 1,700 to 2,000 tons. These were massive ships. And they were being used to transport gold from Peru back to the Roman Catholic purses there in the Spanish uh, Dominion. Now, to show his resolve, Francis Drake attacks these huge vessels with the Pasha and the Swan. That was the two ships he had, the Pasha and the Swan. Now, remember, these Spanish galleons are 1,700 to 2,000 pounds. Now, here comes Francis <laughs> Sir Francis Drake, well, at the time it's just Francis Drake. Here comes Drake's with the Pasha and the Swan. The Pasha was the bigger of the two at 70 tons, 70 tons. And the Swan was a mere 25 tons, 25 tons against a 2,000 ton ship. Now, I can imagine what these captains and, and, the, and the sailors on these Spanish guns, they're like, what in the world is this? You know, here, here's this little, little rinky-dink ship <laughs> And I'm sure they were laughing at him. Uh, but Drake, you know, he wasn't having anything. He was he was determined. He was focused. And listen, Drake not only drove the ships away, but even captured the town and the vast amounts of treasure as well. Uh, now, in uh, the Wikipedia file on Francis Drake, it, it reads this way, and I quote, In 1573, he joined Guillaume Le Testu, a French buccaneer, which is a name for a pirate, okay, in an attack on a richly laden mule train. Drake and his party found that they had captured around 20 tons of silver and gold. They buried much of the treasure, as it was too much for their party to carry. An account of this may have given rise to subsequent stories of pirates and buried treasure. Wounded, Letestu was captured and later beheaded. The small band of adventurers dragged as much gold and silver as they could carry back across some 18 miles of jungle-covered mountains, to where they had left the raiding boats. When they got to the coast, the boats were gone. Drake and his men, downhearted, exhausted and hungry, had nowhere to go and the Spaniards were not far behind. At this point, Drake rallied his men, buried the treasure on the beach and built a raft to sail with two volunteers 10 miles along the surf-lashed coast to where they had left the flagship. When Drake finally reached its deck, his men were alarmed at his bedraggled appearance. Fearing the worst, they asked him how the raid had gone. Drake could not resist a joke and teased them by looking downhearted. Then he laughed, pulled a necklace of Spanish gold from around his neck and said, Our voyage is made, lads. Unquote. So even Drake had a point of, you know, dropping a little <laughs> line of joke, playing jokes on the men. And it does you good. I, the, even the Bible says, laughter doeth the heart good like medicine. You know, so some, sometimes when we make a mistake, I know it tends to get us down. It makes us upset and this sort of thing. Every now and then you just have to laugh at yourself or at least talk to yourself. Everybody thinks you're crazy, but you might learn something interesting when you talk to yourself. So <laughs> here Drake, well, you know, wanted to play a trick on him. And, and okay, they thought that he would be mad because they didn't come and get him. But, you know, anyway, all right. Around 1578, about five years after this account, Drake captures a Spanish galleon and turns it into his flagship named uh, the Golden Hind, H-I-N-D, the Golden Hind. This ship adds very serious power to his revenge factor. The result, uh, his range and number of attacks grew vastly. Near Lima, Peru, he captures another galleon with nearly $15 million worth of gold and silver. 
Next, he captures the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción with 80 tons of gold, jewels, 13 treasure chests, and 26 tons of silver. He then captures many more galleons with maps and government documents. Now note that Drake never killed the crew, but rather turned them loose either in the same or the next port, gave them enough of the treasure money to get them home, and took the ships or either sunk them so they could not be used for Roman Catholic purposes anymore. Now you hear these stories of all these pirates, you know, and they want to kill all the crew and take everything. Uh, Drake was more, uh, showed a more human side. He did, uh, he, he did have a focused uh, channel of revenge, if you will, but it wasn't, it wasn't to kill these people, all right? So, all right, now in 1580, Drake and his armada returned to England. Now the re Queen's, re uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Queen's reward uh, which was half of his take, far surpassed the entire amount of the kingdom's income for the rest of that year. So you can see why she gave him half of it. I mean, he, he brought in like a lot of the whole income. Now, through Francis Drake's actions of plundering these Roman Catholic ships, he almost single-handedly bankrupted the Catholic Church. You know, th this was the volume of where their money was coming from, was all the gold and the silver and treasures that they were bringing back by the hordes uh, from these foreign lands, and and let's let's be clear about this: it wasn't where they were going and trading for this stuff. They were going and raiding these lands. They were killing off all these individuals. Now I'm not going to say that they were committing genocide, but it's pretty clear that it was very close, if if not actually what it was. They were completely wiping out entire civilizations and, and taking all their treasure and bringing it back to the Roman Catholic Church. And Francis Drake, almost single-handedly, by himself, with his crew, uh, almost entirely bankrupted the entire church, Catholic Church. All right, <clears throat> Francis Drake is knighted by Queen Elizabeth, and she also considers all information of Drake's voyages as classified information, and swears all participants to secrecy to keep the Spaniards from finding out more than what they already know about Drake. Now, it's obvious that they knew they were being attacked, but it seems like they didn't know it was either Drake or although they may have known it was Drake, they didn't know who he really was or what he looked like, whatever it was. So she was looking out for him. All right. In 1585, Sir Francis Drake, by that time, is promoted to Vice Admiral of the Royal Navy. And that is second in command overall, which I assume the first in command would be the Admiral, so he's the Vice Admiral. In 1587, before she was executed, Queen Mary of Scots wrote her last will and testament, which offered her blessing to King Philip II of Spain to invade England on her behalf. Remember, we talked last time about her claim to the throne. There was this big thing between Queen Mary of Scots and Queen Elizabeth, so she gave her blessing to uh, the King of Spain to launch an attack against England. Spain was the current military powerhouse of the world. Um, they had the armadas, they had the armies, you know, they were good to go. So, in 1588, King Philip II launched the Spanish Armada against England. Now, the armada consisted uh, of 136 heavily armed Spanish galleons with other various types of fish, uh, <laughs> fish, ships, sorry, 
All right, now we've talked before about how big these Spanish galleons were, you know, 1,700 uh, to 2,000 pounds. These were massive ships. I mean, they were heavy, and they were built to fight. So cannon fire, uh, while after a while they might have been effective, it would have taken quite a bit to become effective, okay? So the Spanish Armada consisted of 136 heavily armed galleons and other various types of ships, while in contrast, the English Armada consisted of only 30 regular warships and some tugboats <laughs> led by Drake. Tugboats, really? I mean, come on, look at the humor in this from the Spanish side, the Spaniard side. Here they are, they have 136 professional warships. 136. What do the English have? They've got 30 regular warships, which means these are probably converted ships. They may not have been built to be warships, although I tend to think they might have been, but they just weren't constructed uh, to the beefy level of the uh, Spanish Armada. And here, the, here they are with 30 regulars and some tugboats. Really? Tugboats. <laughs> I want to go back uh, into your Bible, in the book of Judges. And I'll read another passage. And we know God had appointed Gideon. All right? And I'm going to give you a little bit of, uh, uh, to catch up to where, where we're going to read. If you're in, still in the place in the Bible, it's going to be Judges chapter 7 is where we're at. So what happened was God says, okay, Gideon, I want you to lead the uh, Israelites against the Midianites. And you're going to smite them because I told you will. So <clears throat> Gideon's like, well, are you sure I'm the right man? And the Lord's like, yes, I'm sure you're the right man. And he goes through all these little signs and tests and things. And, you know, God gets kind of impatient with him, but. Gideon finally says, okay, Lord, I, I really don't have a choice. I kind of see what you're saying. So he gets the army together. Uh, and Gideon's like, okay, it's a pretty good army. And the Lord tells me, he says, Gideon, he said, you got too many people. And Gideon, I'm sure, is like, what? <laughs> He's like, I'll, I'll take some more. He's like, you've got too many people. And he goes through this uh, culling process, if you will. They do different things to, to draw them down and draw them down and draw them down. And, it, and the end result is what happens is Gideon ends up with 300 men. 300 men against a fighting army. Again, the, the same picture we see here with Drake. And this army is, is uh, not only qualified, but they're experienced. Remember, they've been attacking them every year, taking all their uh, wheat and all this kind of... And Israel, they've got no choice but to run. They've got nothing to fight with. And, and so uh, not only did they, you know, just not... Lord didn't let them gather all their fighting men. He said, no. He said, I want you to get together 300 men. And, and that's what come down to 300 men. And the picture here, the picture here is if, by chance, Gideon could have pulled the entire army, okay, the Israelite army, and fought the Midianites, then you and I, put in Gideon's shoes, would have been faced with the same thing that Gideon would have been faced with, where he would have probably said, look at what, I did. Look at what I did. And God here is wanting to make absolutely certainly clear that there was no possible way that Gideon could have won this fight. It had to be God. It had to be God. He wanted to leave absolutely no doubt. So not only does he cut the army down to 300, but he tells them, um, you're not going to be using your swords. <laughs> you're going to hold a light covered with a lamp in one 
and a horn in the other. And now let's pick up the story here in Judges chapter 7. And I'll read verse 12, and then I'm going to jump down and read verse uh, 16 through 22. <clears throat> Judges chapter 7, verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number, as the sand by the seaside for multitude. That's quite an army. I mean, you're looking out here, and I'm sure Gideon's shaking his head. He's like, man, I'm really get, about to get into this thing. All right, and we'll pick it up. And it says, and, uh, and he, being Gideon, divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. <clears throat> so Gideon and the hundred men that were with him, uh, and the picture here is, all right, there's 300 men, so he divides them into three. So basically, they've surrounded the camp on three sides. They've made it like a triangle blockade, if you will. All right? So uh, so Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had but newly set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the host ran and cried and fled. And the 300 men blew the trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bathsheba in Zerarath, and to the border of Abelmahola, unto Tabith. So basically what happened here is he took these 300 men and divided them up into like a triangular position around the camp. And they waited until the uh, middle watch, which is very early in the morning, okay? Everybody's sleepy. Everybody's tired. Uh, if you know anything about the military, they say that the most precise time to attack is early in the morning. Uh, everybody that's been up all night is sleepy. And everybody that is asleep is going to be groggy if you wake them up in a in a, a raid like this. So uh, this is the best time. You don't catch them fully alert. You catch them at their weakest moment. And so when they uh, blew the trumpets and they break these pitchers, you know, of course, it, it, it sh shined the light they had. And this massive noise, everybody in the camp automatically assumes, you know, they don't look up and say, oh, man, that's just 300 people. When you hear that kind of a blast... And you get woke up out of a sleep like that. I mean, you panic. And so they actually turned on each other and, and almost killed off each other in the end. And they ended up running. So then Gideon chases them down and they ended up uh, taking them out. So um, th this is kind of the picture we see here where here comes Spain with their massive armada of 136 uh, beefy Spanish galleons coming to attack England. Uh, and they're looking out here through their scopes or th across the water or whatever they uh, visual aids they had. And they see England facing them with these 30 regular ships and some tugboats. And again, I'm sure they laughed. You would have. <laughs> and and this is kind of the exact same thing they're facing here. So Drake 
waited until nightfall and moved in behind the Spanish Armada and attacked. Personally taking the Spanish flagship, the Rosario, along with Admiral Pedro de Valdez and all his crew. As the flagship, Drake also... As the flagship, Drake also captured all the funds that was the pay for the Spanish army, thus making them ineffective. So here is an example of cutting the head off of the snake, and that's what Drake did. In the nighttime, he moved in, got in behind, because I'm sure when the Spanish Armada come up, the, the, the admiral's ship would have been in the back, of, of course, right? So... He knew where he knew that he knew their tactics from fighting them over uh, in Peru and off the uh, coast of South America. So he knew their tactics, and so he used that to his advantage and moved in here and took the main ship and captured the admiral, and then took all the money that the the Spanish navy would have been paid with. And so you know here they are. They're like, <laughs> we got no money. I'm not fighting for free, so I'm out of here. So the English attacked through the night with fire bombs inflicting heavy losses and damage on the Armada. Some of the Spanish ships escaped and fled the fight for home. But, and here it is, but, they were all to the last ship, lost in what is considered a freak, severe storm. It come out of nowhere and sank every single one of the Spanish Armada's ships. Every one of them. If that is not an act of God, how do you explain that? I mean, here it is, 136 ships against 30. Even if they're the same ships, that's still um, three, four to one odds. I mean, obviously you've got the match, but considering that you have the galleons and here you are against 30 little makeshift uh, ships and some tugboats, and they end up beating you like this, and not only when you're fleeing, then a freak's Severe storm takes out the rest of your... There's got to be a message here somewhere for somebody. All right? So King Philip II, the, the king of Spain, put a reward of 20,000 Spanish ducats, which is about $6.5 million on Drake's life. Now, you remember back in the old West movies and they'd have the reward for $100 dead or alive? <laughs> this king was not playing around. Six and a half million dollar reward on Drake's life. Six and a half million dollars. Wow. Uh, Sir Francis Drake's nickname in Latin was uh, Franciscus Draco, meaning Francis the Dragon. <laughs> and I'm sure that gave uh, uh, respect to the attack there where they used the firebombs. So that's why they called Francis the Dragon. All right, now from these two events the dethroning of Queen Mary of Scots, and the naval defeat of the Catholic treasure and Spanish military ships, the Roman Catholic Church has not recovered to this very day as the dominant influence of a nation-state. That is the role that Francis Drake played in bringing about the King James Bible, the authorized version. All right? Now, from the two events, it weakened the Roman Catholic Church, as a political power. Now, the closest they've come to be a dominant in a, in a nation-state is with the nation of Italy, as they are today. They've taken over Rome, basically, as, as their church state, if you will. And they do have governmental powers there, only because other nations have allowed it to happen. Okay? <clears throat> now, England 
then becomes the dominant power in the world. This opens up the continents of Europe, Asia, and the Americas to Englishmen and Scotsmen who spread God's word. Today, America's power survives due to her money and missionaries still spreading God's word. And so it, we, can, we can thank Sir Francis Drake uh, for the events of what it happened in his life and for the revenge factor that he took and, and the uh, military prowess he had there. All right. Now, um, I think I'm going to stop there and uh, we'll pick up next week with uh, a couple of versions, uh, editions to, of the Bible, if you will. Uh, and then we're going to get right into uh, James the Sixth, who is the king, uh, who the King James of the of the Bible, the authorized version, if you will. Um, I sure hope you've enjoyed this. Um, it was more history than biblical, but I think it sure played right in hand with Gideon and what happened to him, how God used him, uh, and how. Uh, maybe Sir Francis Drake wasn't exactly a Christian man. It do doesn't really say uh, other than his dad was a, a Protestant, but uh, God sure used that man uh, to bring about his his will. So I, I think you can obviously see that. All right, so I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you.